Welcome to the Coffee with Chris podcast. Just dark enough to be thought-provoking and just light enough to be funny. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Thurber, psychologist and professional educator, or so they tell me. Okay, I've got mine. I hope you've got yours. Let's get started. I'm delighted that our guest today is Jessica Lepler, who is an associate professor of history at the University of New Hampshire. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you published an op-ed in the Washington Post yesterday entitled, To Weather the COVID-19 Storm, President Trump Must Offer Better Information. Tell us about that op-ed for people who didn't get a chance to read it and from an historian and academic point of view, uh, what do we know about what's going on? Well, knowing what's going on is really the point of my op-ed. So um, this op-ed, I've worked on it for the last few days to try to use some of the knowledge I learned in writing my first book, which was called The Many Panics of 1837. And it was um, about a financial crisis that happened, really a global financial crisis that happened in the mid, early mid-19th century. Um, and, and one of the big things that I learned about this financial crisis is that um, communication is at the very heart of capitalism. So it's at mm. the very heart of our economic system, but it's also... Um, communication is so important for individuals to try to make sense of any situation, not just economic life, but really any part of life. Um, Yeah. So accurate communication, rapid communication, these are things that humans sort of depend on to make good choices. And um, I feel like we haven't been getting very good information and we spend a lot of time, I watch my husband and I trying to figure out what's going on, trying to weigh sources and figure out what's real and what's not real and what information could help our family and what uh, information is made up. Um, and, and in a crisis, that kind of having to sort through information is what makes a panic worse because panic right. is really about uncertainty. Yeah. If you don't know what's going on, you can't predict what's going to happen because you don't have reliable information, um, it leads people to do all sorts of desperate things. And so in the panic I studied in my first book, um, people did all sorts of awful things because the information um, about the severity of the crisis got stuck at sea. This was an age before telephones or telegraphs or anything faster than um, foot power or hoof power or um, wind power. And uh, the center of the economy in the 19th century was London. America was a growing cotton producing country. Cotton was the fuel of the Industrial Revolution. It built the American economy. It built much of Britain's economy too, um, built on the backs of enslaved people, the hands of enslaved people. And, um, And so that cotton, got traded in Britain, but the credit that enabled cotton to even be grown in the United States also came from Britain. So in order to figure out how much a cotton crop was worth in the United States, they needed information from England. And when the news, like the the first little bits of news saying credit was tightening up, we know that because we've been through financial crises where credit has tightened up. That happened in the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, when credit tightens up, Uh, banks stop lending or they slow down their lending, and that can have a real effect on the economy. Um, And so the same thing happens when prices of a staple drop. So we're seeing that with oil right now. But yeah, 19th century, it's cotton. So they get the first sort of real information that that those are changing, uh, but then they don't get any information for weeks because it gets stuck. There's no wind. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so people do all sorts of things. They think lots of people can't tell whether that nobody can tell whether they are solvent or insolvent, whether their businesses are going to survive, whether they're going to be able to keep their houses, whether uh, they're going to be able to feed their families. There's big layoffs in um, it's still a pretty agricultural society. So the urban working population isn't that big, but they're desperately poor. 
Uh, and so layoffs mean starvation. And there's no, there's no welfare, there's no social safety net of any kind. And this so, was all the fallout of one piece of information that, that proprietors or I guess owners of cotton plantations were getting that the price of cotton was going down or that banks in London were not going to finance the, yeah, so they're connected. the operation. Okay. Right. They're totally connected. Those two things are connected. In the South, they're growing cotton, but in New York, for example, Boston, they're trading in cotton because right. there's industrial textile mills here. I mean, literally in Exeter, we can see them from my house, which is across the street from your house. Right. Um, yeah. Down, I should have mentioned road. to viewers that, you know, our viewers, to listeners <laughs> that we're across the street neighbors, which is awesome. <laughs> so, okay. So, but, right. And now they're condominiums, but, but that yeah. was at one point uh, across, uh, across the Squamscott River. Yeah. Just a, a mill. textile mill. A textile cotton, mill. Cotton mill. Yeah. And so everybody's panicking, you say, because uh, there is there's a lack of information. Uh, right. They don't know yeah. how badly they're going to fail. They don't know if they're going to fail. They don't know if they can trust the person who's selling them food yeah. or, or that they're selling their, you know, hose or rakes or whatever too like they don't know and and there's another wrinkle in this story the 19th century is fascinating there's no national money supply so paper money um is printed by banks yes and every bank prints their own set of denominations there's over oh, wow. 700 banks in the country so 700 banks like times i don't know five or six denominations you could start yeah. to think about like there's thousands of kinds of banknotes that you have to assess and figure out whether it's worth it to trust that as money. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, gosh. Yeah. So yeah. Confidence in the money falters, <laughs> confidence in um, the account books, right? So even if you kept perfect accounts, my husband loves Quicken. He keeps a Quicken record of every credit card card, <laughs> you know, um, to the penny, he can tell us what's yeah. coming in and what's going out. But if you're making the record of like what you're selling and what you're buying based on prices that are estimates, and those prices are estimates based on what's happening in Liverpool, and the numbers from Liverpool aren't making it to the United States, then oh, you you can't figure out whether even you yourself are solvent. And this leads to suicides. I mean, this leads wow. to, right. yeah, like it's not just a little panic. It leads to an enormous yeah. panic. And again, kind of like in our own time, the federal government chooses to take no role in trying to help this problem. So there's no like yeah. mission of instilling confidence in people or trying to um, come up with a plan to help anybody. Um, the, the Andrew Jackson was the president at the beginning of this sort of problem. And Martin Van Buren is inaugurated at, at basically exactly the moment that the, the rumors start. And so he really wants nothing to do with it. And he refuses. Bankers keep meeting with him and keep trying to get him to do something. And he just blanket refuses. What was so, the standard period of time that it would take for information to get mm -hmm. news from, let, let's say, from London to New York? Right. So it's much faster one direction than the other because of the way the winds blow. Uh, yes. So, so I would imagine, so um, what faster sailing from New York to, well, wherever you're sailing to, you know, right. uh, where would be, where would be sailing to Bristol or something? Liverpool. Liverpool. Yeah, okay. Right. Mm, yeah, um, Liverpool or London, but yeah, they, um, the, the, the sailing rates now it's been, it's been over a decade since I wrote this book. So, um, well, it's not of over a decade, seven years since it was published, but um, I think if I remember correctly, it's faster going to England than it is yeah. coming the other way, right? Because the winds, yeah. yeah. So are we talking about uh, like a week or so or two weeks or? Um, the fastest ship could get there in two weeks. Okay. Uh, wow. Coming back, it's, it's slower, but um, right. So the panic of 1837, um, happens in the spring of 1837. And by the end of the year, in early 1838, uh, there's the first experiments of steam-powered uh, transatlantic crossings. And okay. steam power would soon make that a much faster, um, a faster journey. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's weeks. It's weeks. That's amazing. Um, and yeah. so because- if you're lucky. 
they're going in the slow direction. There's information that's coming. And I assume the information that was coming in 1837 was actually, it's not so bad. I mean, if people had had that information, if there had been the internet in 1837, if people had had the information that was stuck in on the windless seas, uh, yeah. would, would, would they have uh, felt more confident, less confident? Uh, it was actually devastating financial news. So okay. uh, the news was bad in two oh, different ways. Yeah, yeah. It, it was bad because they didn't have a, enough news during the panic. And then yeah. after the news arrived, it was that prices had halved uh, for cotton and that credit was completely shut off. So, oh uh, but, yeah. but the interesting thing is the panicking, the like taking things to extreme measures kind of changes as soon as they know that they're going to fail, which is what the news said, basically, like right. merchants, you are going to fail. Banks, you are going to fail. I mean, by, by the early 1840s, eight states have defaulted on their loans, states like oh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so when the news gets here and, and it arrives and it says, uh, you know, everybody's going to fail, then everybody fails. And the court system starts to work its way through and people who know that they're not going to be able to save their business start making deals that end, wind down their affairs. But like, nobody is like, will I fail? Will I live? Will I, you know, like they, they right. kind of calm down. Um, and it takes seven years for the economy to recover. And in those seven years, there are other peaks and troughs of this sort of escalation and some there's an attempt to, co to corner the market on cotton uh, in there. Um, but but in general, like once the, the sort of anxiety about like survival and, and uncertainty calms down, uh, the diaries of people from the time are sort of like it's a surreal calm. They don't say surreal, but they say calm like yeah, there's this yeah. kind of becalming atmosphere that happens after uh, the banks just close their doors. And in later panics, there would be big bank runs. Um, it famously in Mary Poppins, you know, uh, the little boy refuses to deposit his tuppence in the bank and like <laughs> yeah. everybody goes crazy, right? Yeah. Um, and they all demand their money immediately. And so like later panics, and there's a lot of panics in the 19th century, 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1893. Like there's a lot of these they know that they're all going to fail. So the banks in the very beginning, there's a few bank runs and then the New York banks shut their doors and then banks all over the whole country shut their doors very quickly. And um, they stop, they stop honoring those banknotes. They stop trading gold or silver for the banknotes. And then the banknotes kind of still circulate because they yeah. don't have any other money. But, um, but yeah, so it's an interesting case because it, it doesn't have the same sort of bank run story which is the famous image of a panic. And yeah. it's called the, the many panics because uh, New Orleans and New York are the two centers of the economy at that time. And they have entirely separate panics uh, for a while. And London has its own panic happening at exactly the same time in across the Atlantic. And so there are these plural panics and they yeah. don't actually become one panic until basically it's over and people go back to tell the story. So if you've just joined us, um, I'm talking with Jessica Lepler, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of New Hampshire. Um, in 2013, uh, Cambridge University Press published her first book, The Many Panics of 1837, People, Politics, and the Creation of a Transatlantic Financial Crisis. And especially germane to what people are coping with now, we've got the stock market uh, having to be artificially halted several times because uh, it's in a bit of a free fall. And to your point, panic is the result of a lack of information, not the result of good versus bad information. I mean, I just think it's fascinating 
as a psychologist, not an historian, but thinking about, so here are all these people involved in the cash crop of the time, cotton, and they were either growing it or uh, they were selling it or they were turning it into fabric or something. Um, and as you said, uh, you know, a sad, uh, I think, centerpiece of that industry is that it's happening with enslaved persons. Um, but people panicking because there's one piece of information about the banks in London supporting or not supporting or cutting the price of cotton. And because the rest of the information, which was, as you said, abysmal news, failed to reach the continent, this continent, um, in a timely fashion, people's imagination ran wild. And your uh, op-ed in the Washington Post yesterday was saying, essentially, let's not let this happen again, but it seems like it is happening again, that the federal government is not being as uh, forthcoming with factual information and providing reassurance and also providing the bad news. Uh, that's fine. Um, again, I think the most psychologically stunning part of why people stopped panicking um, is that they got bad news, but they got news. They got... <laughs> they got real news. They got, you know, eventually the wind picked up and some ship landed in New York or somewhere and said, okay, look, you know, this is awful. This is terrible. But now, you know, it's the not knowing that uh, caused people panic. And as you said, even drove some people to commit suicide. So, wow, I'm just, uh, you know, we, we don't have, you know, the wind, the wind doesn't control how quickly we get the information, but we have something equally capricious uh, in, in, in the federal government um, and perhaps most capricious in our current president. Uh, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you like to see uh, the federal government from the president on down uh, do starting tomorrow morning? Gosh, I would like to see somebody who people can trust. So maybe not the president, but somebody who we believe in. Yeah. Um, maybe a fresh face. Yeah. Say, give an announcement every day of sort of what the current status is, right? Okay. Like, so yeah. this, is, this is how many cases we have, and this is our actions today, and this is what you as responsible people ought to do. And this is when we predict that it will end. And um, here's what we're going to do to make sure that your economic lives are not destroyed as you're trying to save your physical bodies from a horrible contagion. So yeah. we're going to support people who are unemployed. We're going to waive interest payments. The federal government will pay interest for you for three months. You know, uh, we think it's going to last three months. That would be nice to begin with, right? Um, also, um, I really think testing is at the heart of this. I think that because uh, they didn't do a sort of universal testing, they didn't have enough tests and they didn't do the testing, yeah. um, it leaves this sort of question. I was just playing with my son um, along the river in the park and, you know, I was like, don't touch the railing, don't touch this, don't touch that, because we just, you know, you never, you don't yeah. know. And yeah. um, I think that, I think that if we were able to know uh, who's sick and who's not sick, that would do a lot to containing not just the disease, but would do enormous things for containing the disease. But it would also do a lot for containing our emotions as we yeah. deal with this incredible uncertainty and unprecedented isolation yeah. that we're asking everyone to impose on themselves. Yeah. Um, I was looking back at, uh, at a little bit of, of my research and um, it's interesting to think about this from a psychologist's perspective, because in the 1830s, psychology basically didn't exist. Um, phren phrenology existed, and it was right. very popular. <laughs> uh, 
So for your listeners who don't know what phrenology is, it's this 19th century pseudoscience where they believe little organs within your brain, which isn't entirely impossible now. Like, you know, there are sections of your brain that control different things, but they believed they were actually like separate organs inside your brain that controlled different emotional behaviors. And so how did they explain the psychology of panic? They didn't say like, you know, it's your mind trying to process uncertainty. They said people with cautiousness or organelles that were overexcited. So your little organelles could get so stimulated uh, that your cautiousness got so concerned. And then people with um, really enlarged sympathy organelles would be near the people whose cautiousness organelles <laughs> right, right. were excited. And that's how panic spread. Like that's, right. that's, so it's kind of a contagion of the brain in a way. Right. I mean, they got the organelles part sort of wrong. Um, yeah. And the, the, the assessment of this by uh, palpating people's skull, yeah. right. And saying, yeah. okay, well, it's a little bumpy over here. You got a little raised area over there. So you must be more sympathetic or, Right. More sensitive. But, uh, you know, so the anatomical piece, understandably totally wrong, given the technology at the time, right, they whiffed, <laughs> but they, they, they understood, uh, you know, as well as we do now, how uncertainty uh, can lead people to catastrophize and think of the worst case scenario and behave right. uh, with partial information irrationally and, and, you know, as, as you uncovered in your research, some people more prone to do that than others. But mm -hmm. what you're saying is, if, if a trustworthy source were to provide valid information on, uh, on diagnosis, on timeline, on right. financial support, on health support, um, and even to stand up at a podium and say, this one we don't know yet, but we're right. working on it. Yeah, and it's just uh, yeah, it's fascinating to think that uh, for, you know, whoever wanted to believe any of the, uh, how do we want to say this? The invalid information that from the executive branch and others uh, has been shared over the last few years, it may have provided some uh, some sort of distorted reassurance that, uh, oh, right, see, I mean, this thing that I believe, uh, you know, the president or somebody else in charge is saying, yep, this is true. Uh, but now the lack of validity is is backfiring for all of us because without accurate information, uh, we're more anxious. So yeah. what, what response have you gotten to your op-ed? Well, it's funny because, um, so I just opened a Twitter account. That's new for me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really have been so busy uh, in my professional life and my personal life with a young child that I didn't think I could afford the time for social me social networking. And you're probably right. Um, uh, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> but in this time of social distancing, I really miss my network. So, yeah. um, so I joined it and um, I like, uh, so I had about a hundred followers the day I joined because there's a lot of historians I know, but I got 80 new followers that day from posting the article. So that's pretty cool. And most people, I, uh, most people who contacted me or responded to my tweet or responded to my Facebook post, because of course I'm not seeing anyone in person because we're social distancing, um, they pretty much were very positive. Like this is a very good idea. Like we should have information. That would be a good thing. Um, the people who commented directly on the website, interestingly enough, got very fixated on the title, which was not my choice. And they um, were like, we can't trust President Trump. Why would more information from him be any better? And I, you know, kind of agree with them. Like, yeah. why would that be any better? But at the same time, more information from a trustworthy source and not having to hunt it down, not feeling like a, another one of my jobs every day is to try to find the information that will help me live or die. Like yeah. that, uh, that is, uh, 
the thing that I think um, most people would agree on with, even even the people who criticized the idea that Trump should give it to us. Okay, well, somebody should be um, conveying certainty, at least about the uncertainties, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and so for people who are interested, uh, Professor Lepler's Twitter is at Lepler, L-E-P-L-E-R. Um, and is your Facebook Jessica Lepler? Uh, yeah, I think it is. All right. Well, I can yeah. look while we're talking. But, uh, <laughs> so you should definitely follow her on Twitter at Lepler, L-E-P-L-E-R. Um, so if, again, if you've just joined us, I'm talking with Associate Professor of History Jessica Lepler, whose first book, The Many Panics of 1837, points out the importance of accurate information to prevent panic and whether the changing times are bringing us good news or bad news, knowing what is happening is essential to people's uh, psychological stability. And of course, their psychological stability is related to all kinds of things like the stability of their relationships or uh, you know, their mental health, the stability of the financial world. Um, and your op-ed in the Washington Post makes this really, you know, trenchant, relevant point, which is we've got to have information, some very basic, you know, projections, reassurance, plans, uh, somebody, you know, trying to be in charge. Maybe uh, Mike Pence has, you know, in some people's estimation, tried to do a little bit of that. Uh, sadly, he's undermined by uh, Trump at every turn. So it's really frustrating, I think, for everyone who is, uh, you know, like you are, like I am, observing this social distancing and trying to establish some kind of new normal and a daily schedule and balance family and, you know, career <laughs> all in the same, you know, relatively small space. Uh, definitely not easy. Um, now, you know, so let's hope that there's more information that is forthcoming from, uh, you know, trustworthy sources, whether that's the CDC or someone, but uh, it's, it's, it's also going to take some restraint from, you know, Donald Trump to not be um, contradicting with his own imaginary um, ideas, what, you know, folks with actual scientific credentials and the knowledge <laughs> that we're seeking, um, you know, are sharing with us. Um, I understand that you're an historian, not an economist per se, but you have studied the history of a lot of economic change uh, on a very practical level uh, as you, as you said earlier, maybe there will be some federal relief for uh, businesses. Um, you know, I know that some things, um, you know, have been rolled out or forgiveness of interest for, let's say, on student loans or something for a few months. But um, what about for people's investment portfolios? Uh, they may have a retirement account or maybe they have a taxable investment account or maybe they just have cash you know, up the street at Citizens Bank. Um, one of the scary parts about the many panics of 1837 was that people were not behaving rationally. And even though the news that was slowly drifting across the Atlantic was bad news, um, obviously people did some things that were uh, driven by their own panicky worst case scenario thoughts. Um, so do you have any practical uh, recommendations for people like you, me, anyone listening who has money in the bank or some kind of investment? Um, does history well, tell us that we should let that kind of ride or? What are your thoughts? I, I mean, uh, so, so I have two thoughts and I'll start with the easier one, I think, which is that, um, you know, historically, the stock market comes back, and it comes back higher than it ever was. And there's an old, um, 
I did, I looked at a lot of novels. Um, I looked at diaries. I looked at letters. I looked at account books. I looked at everything you can imagine from 1837. And, um, there's an, a, a story about a person who was a stock trader in 1837 that came out later in his life. Uh, and he's writing this sort of memoir thing. And he talks about how every time there's a panic, and like I said, there were panics kind of regularly, every 20 years or so, the mm. spiders would creep out of their den and they would, um, they would sort of suck the blood of um, the stocks, they would go in and invest their money in these newly drained of um, sort of value stocks. So yep. uh, I guess one piece of advice is to be the spider. Like if you have cash and the stock market's very low, it is a good time to invest. You know, it's not a good time to sell. Like you don't yeah, want to be the right. one who who has to has to give up their retirement portfolio in the middle of a big downturn. You want to hold on to it and wait. And historically, it's actually a good time to buy things because uh, they will probably, although this is an un not unprecedented entirely, but a very, very atypical situation, um, they probably will go up. But I am not a financial analyst or an okay. economist. So that's, so that, so that's our that, that is my that is my um, That is my two cents. But the thing I do know is that one person's rational quote unquote, rational behavior mm. um, is another person's irrational behavior and vice versa. Okay. So um, in February of 1837, before news got stuck at sea, before uh, there was really that much knowledge that the market was going to go down that much, is starting mm. to tremble, but not really. Um, prices on food went through the roof, especially grain. So in the 1830s, people still baked their own bread. You needed flour to bake your own bread. The industrial sort of industrialization had gotten to the point where urban people um, bought flour. Actually, lots of people all over the U.S. had started to buy flour. That was one of the first things that they used cash for. Uh, it, it was very labor intensive to grow your own wheat and to mill your own wheat. Um, and it became a way that the idea of the breadwinner, men's work moved out of the house earning cash and they bought the bread. <laughs> um, there so, you go. Fun fact yeah, for the day. Fun fact, That's right? Where the expression comes from, breadwinners. Yeah. So breadwinners, right? So you have to buy your flour if you're living in New York City and you're a poor working person, but the price of flour goes through the roof in February. And on Valentine's Day of, of 1837, there's a giant flour riot. So a group of poor people, they're meeting in the park. This is a moment of labor organization before the Panic of 1837. And uh, they're having a political rally. And the political rally turns into a riot. They go to the flower merchants and they break down the windows and the doors and they throw flour from the third and fourth story, flower sacks and barrels. Oh. They throw it out of the buildings and it all crashes into the streets. There were uh, inches full of flour. So, what city was this? New York? New York City. So these these are the flower so riots. The Boston Tea Party and the New York Flower wow. Party. New York Flower Riot, right? Wow. Yeah, they don't call it a party because it was not a party. <laughs> Understandably. Uh, okay. Yeah. So the the kind of middle class elite newspapers from the period all criticize them. They're like these flower rioters. They don't understand supply and demand, right? If you just if prices are high and you destroy the supply, the price is just going to get higher. Silly mm. rioters! Like, <laughs> really, what you want to do is either you know this, this isn't going to help your problem. But the rioters understood that they had to feed their families. They couldn't wait for increased supply. They couldn't wait for the price to come down. They had starving children at home, yeah. so they threw the flour out of the window and. No, it didn't make the price of flour go down, but it did make the merchants give flour at a reasonable price for these poor people to buy for their families. Um, and some of the wow. poorest people in New York, actually they, there's like accounts of immigrant women coming and collecting the flour in sacks, the flour that's on the street right. with nails in it and bits of sacks in it, like just, gathering that up to take home to their children. So the 
they were wrong. The, the, the sort of like, it's irrational to throw the flower out the window. Well, yeah. for these rioting people, it sort of is rational because they ended up getting the flour they needed to feed their families much more timely than if they had to wait for the supply to increase. So I, I use that as an example to say, yeah. like, sometimes the thing that looks rational to one person is entirely irrational. And sometimes the thing that looks rational to another person is entirely irrational to the other. So yeah. uh, it's interesting to think about when we talk about panic, it's kind of a laden term because um, it's based on the eye of the observer, the, the perspective right. of the person doing it. You know, often in my workshops with camp staff or faculty at independent schools, we're talking about behavior management or uh, the different things that people can do to people, uh, professional educators, youth leaders, uh, increase the frequency of compliant behavior because, <laughs> boy, that's really nice. Um, but also recognizing that that behavior sometimes, uh, you know, the normal range of human behavior includes anger and conflict and, you know, irritability and rudeness. And that's, you know, is common among young people, if not more so than among the college age students taking care of those young people at a camp or the uh, perhaps somewhat older, wiser faculty at an independent school that are uh, charged with the education and, and welfare of, uh, of students, whether they're boarding or day. So the point is um, many people in you know, positions being professional educators or youth leaders get very frustrated with what seems like irrational kid behavior. And I'm often saying in workshops, all behavior makes sense to the actor. Right, yes. Right. So take a deep breath, try not to take it personally and understand that something else was going on for that person that makes it reasonable for them at the time, given the information they had to have done what they did. And from your different perspective, uh, it really doesn't make sense, but that's an argument not for condemnation or discrimination or any other, you know, bad treatment of one person by another, but instead it's an argument for gathering more information. You don't have to like what they did. And if somebody has broken a rule, okay, and maybe some of those people who threw flower sacks out of the you know, windows spent a night or more in jail. Like there can be consequences for misbehavior, but understanding that is, uh, I think, a first step. Exactly what you said. You know, one person's one person's rational is another person's irrational, and we are currently living uh, through this COVID nineteen pandemic with a lot of what you know appears to some people to be irrational behavior. When I was in the supermarket the other day, there were, not only was there no more flour, and now I think I understand why, um, <laughs> thanks to my good friend who's an historian who lives across the street, but also no toilet paper. And like, I don't, I mean, I was just cracking up driving home going, well, okay, I, was, I guess I was only cracking up because we have plenty of toilet paper here in my basement, but going like, people are not going to poop more because... You know, <laughs> or maybe they will. I don't know. <laughs> maybe <laughs> it's just you know I I understand again. You know, once I sort of got over my own um, you know joke to myself that all right, yeah, but maybe people don't buy rolls and rolls and rolls of toilet paper like we do in my family, we buy enough for a month and then we don't have to buy it for another month. But okay, you know, if you're going to sequester uh, yourself or shelter in place, uh, you're going to want that. But um, I walked into a train station two weeks ago and I was going to get myself a little bottle of sanitizer at the convenience store. And the clerk said, you know what? You, you just missed buying the last bottle. Now this 
was two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, March 8th or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there weren't as many uh, stringent guidelines on sheltering in place and uh, social distancing, but people were still being careful. And the clerk said, the woman who is in here before you bought the 20 bottles that I had, um, you know, little, little bottles, but she bought them all. And I said to her, you know, uh, like, I can't, I have to sell you these. There's no restriction. I didn't post a sign that said you can only like buy five, but you might want to think that there are other people who are going to want some sanitizer. And she said to me, I have a big family. So this is what the clerk is telling me. And, you know, he and I just kind of, yeah, uh, you know, shared a moment of, yep, um, you know, people are going to behave in ways that some of us are going to perceive as selfish or irrational. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also don't know that person's story. So maybe there's something to, uh, you know, for all of us to take away from uh, what you're sharing with us in the, you know, the New York flower riots that we, we are, I'm sure, if you haven't already seen people behaving in ways that make you scratch your head, we're going to see some more of that in the coming weeks. And before we, you know, incite a riot of our own, maybe just stopping and taking a deep breath and asking ourselves, you know, well, what, must be going on for that person that they're behaving in that way, or just saying to ourselves, you know, well, all behavior makes sense to the actor. Again, you don't have to like it. Um, and maybe there are consequences for breaking the law or misbehaving in other ways, but, uh, but lest things get panicky or violent, uh, we need to remember that um, panic is often the result of a lack of information and we're currently in, you know, getting a mix of some decent information and some not decent information. And then there are these, you know, lacuna or whatever, these, this whole, these holes, absence of information. Mm -hmm. So uh, people are feeling a little panicky. That's probably normal. People acting a little strange. That's probably normal. Um, we're, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, say we're almost at the end of our time. So oh. I was going to sort of, you know, invite you to, you know, offer any final thoughts that you have, but no time limit. So go right ahead. Okay. Well, I was going to say that, like, people sometimes jump um, to try to take the advantage of being the first person to do something. Like, there's a big um, advantage sometimes to being ahead so like the woman who bought all 20 bottles of sanitizer ahead mm -hmm. of you uh, is, is trying to maximize like being ahead of that curve just a little bit. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know if you want me to tell you another little story yes, from 1837. Please. Okay. Well, one of my favorite stories I call the case of the leaky clerk. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it, you might imagine it relates to both um, at jumping at early information and bathrooms toilet okay. paper. So uh, <laughs> this clerk at the Bank of England um, in London uh, is one of the people who is a, you know, he, he uses a pen all day. His job is to record information that transforms other people's financial lives. Um, and he's not supposed to respond to that financial information. You know, his job is like just to record it and to move the paper along the chain. Um, but he gets financial information sitting at his desk that is incredibly damaging for a very big business, a very big banking company. Mm. And instead of keeping it to himself, he has to use the bathroom. And so he goes to what they called an inconvenience, a convenience in the corner. Okay. Uh, con a convenience, of course, being a euphemism for, they didn't really have indoor plumbing in those days. So uh, a euphemism for a sort of chamber pot room okay. um and he walks past an old friend of his from school who was a stockbroker and he tells the stockbroker the little bit of information he just gathered at his desk and it causes a sort of run on a company 
um, across the street. So it proves very inconvenient for this company that's trying to sort out its financial problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, it, it doesn't actually crash the company, but it's the beginning of the end for that company. And at the same time, for this clerk who tries to take the jump, the first step of information, like get ahead of that curve, yeah, yeah. Um, he ends up losing his job, which was a middle-class job that supported his family. And he ends up bringing down a whole bunch of other clerks from that room that worked with him. Um, so like, it's interesting to think about how just these kinds of rumors, just these kinds of like attempts to claw a little bit more for yourself out of the situation can be very damaging um, for others and, and even for yeah. ourselves. So it's just sort of interesting. And I really like the story of the leaky clerk because I mean, how many times do you get to find in the archives, the records of somebody who has no other reason to be in the documented records. You know, he, he right. doesn't have a very big life. He's not a president <laughs> or a, you know, owner of a giant, he's not a Rothschild, you know? But at the same time, uh, when you find someone like that who does a behavior that's so interesting and can have big consequences, um, it really brings that person to life. And you see that ordinary people like you and me and um, everyone, um, we actually can shape events. And I think that one of the most important lessons that I learned from working on this panic, um, the panic in 1837, yeah. was that we actually have a lot of control over what stories we tell about what we did and how we did it and why we did it. So mm -hmm. after this is all over, it's hard for us to imagine it will ever end sometimes when we're in the middle of it. But after it's all over, and even while we're in it, the stories we tell about um, who was at fault, about how we coped, about what were our priorities, um, those stories can be incredibly important later on. Um, and they can shift parties, they can shift political power, they can shift people's individual lives tremendously. Um, so my biggest piece of advice to your listeners is to think about what way they want to shape their own version of what it was like to live through the coronavirus, because they actually have that power in their lives to think about it and, and not necessarily be panicked, but maybe think about it in a kind of give it, make it a more meditative process of thinking about like, what story do I want to be able to tell my grandchildren about what living in 2020 was like. Words of wisdom. Wow. It's an opportunity for everyone to be their best selves. And I love from an historian perspective, your, your charge, your challenge to the listening public to think about what stories you want told about how you behaved, responded, mm -hmm. adjusted to uh, the COVID-19 crisis in, in 2020. Uh, well, I've been talking with Jessica Lepler, who's Associate Professor of History at the University of New Hampshire, and we've been talking about panic from uh, economic, uh, from a psychological, from a broadly human and even philosophical standpoint, um, she is the uh, author of several books in 2013, wrote uh, The Many Panics of 1837, People, Politics, and the Creation of a Transatlantic Financial Crisis. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. It's published by Cambridge University Press. Um, tell us, just before we close, uh, Jessica, the book that you're working on now, um, and and then promise that uh, you'll join me for another podcast because you also know so much about the history of animals and that also <laughs> has a connection to COVID-19. So we have to do another podcast really soon, but, but I understand that you're working on uh, another book and it may have absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with what we talked about today. Totally fine. Um, but um, I want people to know what you're working on. Okay, well, um, so I'm teaching history of animals this semester, and it's a sort of pet, pardon the pun, or maybe enjoy the pun, yeah, uh, project of mine 
to, uh, yeah, I love it. It's a way to teach history of capitalism to students who don't necessarily know they like history or know that they like business history or economic history. And so uh, history of animals is one of my favorite classes to teach. And I get a lot of pre-vet students and uh, students who want to become dairy farmers and do name it like they're not usually history majors and a lot of them come out of that class and say i never realized that you know vets didn't take care of dogs before the tw late 20th century or <laughs> anything like that so it's super yeah, fun but uh, awesome. my it is awesome and I, i'm teaching it this semester and it's very hard to transition it to online because i yeah. love the dynamic of working with my students directly mm -hmm. but um what i'm writing uh, I was on, I actually had a research leave last semester, which was awesome. Um, but I'm writing about attempts to build a, a canal across Lake Nicaragua in the 1820s. Um, so Central America, newly independent from Spain, uh, creates this uh, republic that only lasts a few years. And American companies, British companies, um, as well as the American, the U.S. government, the British government, and several other players um, are trying to fight for a contract from this brand new Central American government to build what is the world's greatest infrastructure project that anyone could imagine. I mean, to basically fulfill Columbus's dream. Uh, yeah, yet the people on the ground and the animals there and the environment um, might resist that um, as being the greatest thing that could ever happen. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's a it's a really fun story full of grift and graft and great characters. And um, I sort of love working on it. That's great. Well, um, we'll also feature you back on the podcast when you've got an opportunity to share more about that or maybe when the yeah. book is published but thank you for being with us today and speaking of bridges we're i am really honored that you joined me on this podcast um very short notice but with something that is hugely hugely relevant um you told us about your op-ed in the washington post which was uh, published just yesterday um and summarized us for us some of the lessons from the panic of 1837 so that we can try to not repeat um, some of that, even though we live in a very different world psychologically. Boy, it seems like uh, we're, we're the same. Well, we're definitely the same species. We're uh, dealing with different challenges with information, but uh, facing some of the same, um, you know, possible downsides to uh, a crisis. So thank you for building a bridge for us from 1837 and lessons <laughs> learned there to 2020. And uh, hope that you'll come back and do another podcast with me. It was a joy to have you as a guest. So thank you for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. All right, I've been speaking with Jessica Lepler, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, you can find out more about her if you want to visit the University of New Hampshire's uh, website, unh.edu. Um, am I able to give out your email? I have it right here. Sure. Okay, jessica.lepler, L-E-P-L-E-R, at unh.edu. And you can follow her on Twitter at Lepler. You've been listening to Coffee with Chris with me, Dr. Chris Thurber. You can listen to more terrific podcasts and learn about the work I do with schools and camps by visiting my websites, drchristhurber.com, prepforschool.com, and prepforcamp.com. Thanks for listening.